0: Hello and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Thanks for all the kind words about our new look for the podcast. Keep the messages coming. Again, I'm at Ian Andrews DC, or you can send to at Chainalysis on either X or LinkedIn. If you listen to this podcast regularly, we use the term Web3 quite a bit. But have you ever stopped to think about what Web3 really is? And where did the movement of innovators and entrepreneurs behind Web3 come from? My guest this week is author and co-founder of the Blockchain Research Institute, Alex Tapscott, and he's been thinking about Web3 a lot. In fact, he's just released a brand new best-selling book called Web3, charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. Alex dives deep into the topic of creator ownership, the balance between privacy and transparency in Web3, and the untapped potential of the metaverse. We also talk about tokenomics, and if it's good or bad to operate in a world where everything has a price on it. And of course, we talk about chain analysis Research, which is cited more than a few times in the book. You might have heard we're publishing our annual adoption index right now, This past week, we just published a blog focused on East Asia. It's the fifth most active crypto market that we study and accounts for almost 9% of global crypto activity between July of 22 and June of 23. If you'd like to learn more about how crypto is being adopted in East Asia, head down to the show notes to find the link to the complete blog. Today, I'm joined by Alex Tapscott, who is author of a new book, Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Alex, welcome to the program happy to be here. I got an advanced copy of the book. Uh, By the time this podcast publishes, uh, it will be available for purchase. And I'm going to make a recommendation just here at the top. Hopefully it doesn't embarrass you. Everyone that's in the space, thinking about the space, or wants to get into Web3 should go and buy and read this book. I really enjoyed it.
1: (laughs) What a great way to start off the podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: I agree. <laughs> I don't want to bury the lead. You cover a ton of ground. You also managed to do something that I think is really hard to do in print journalism and in particularly in books is you're running through topics that are very timely, like things that happened even all the way up through this summer. Maybe we can start out with, you know, what inspired you to write this book? This is actually your second second book in the space following 2016's hit that you, uh, I think, co-wrote with with your father, Don. Why this book? Why now?
1: Well, I started to think about writing a new book back in um 2020 21 just as, you know, the DeFi summer was was kicking off and there was this renewed interest in the industry as a whole now for people who don't know I've been at this for some time you know I started in the business in 2015 when I started to learn about Bitcoin and started writing about Bitcoin and that research and writing and stuff that I did at the time led to the book that you just described blockchain revolution which I co-authored with my dad Um, they say you know better lucky than smart that book came out in 2016 right at that perfect time when probably a lot of people who are listening to this show first started to pay attention to this and for a lot of people it was their first book and their first into this space. So fast forward a few years, you know, all of a sudden the industry is much, much larger than it was. When we wrote Blockchain Revolution, the value of all crypto assets was, you know, eight or nine billion dollars. Like if it was a publicly traded company, it would have barely cracked the S&P 500, right? It was kind of a rounding error. And now, you know, after many years, the industry had grown really significantly in many different ways, you know, both in terms of the technology and the functionality, but also the value of the asset class, but also the way in which it was being, you know, thought about and used by big enterprises uh, and other kinds of organizations. And I felt that there was a need to explain what what the heck was going on. And then 2022 happened, and we saw the collapse of several, you know, big companies that are in the space. And that actually really sort of hastened my sense of urgency to write a book about this. I find that there are a lot of common misconceptions about Web3 that have been hard to demystify. And I felt there was an opportunity to try and just really wipe the mud off the windshield and provide a very clear picture of what this is and what it isn't and uh, and why people should care. And they should care because this is the the next era of the web, but it's also a new era of the internet. And this is something that I think a lot of people should care about.
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, my experience is shorter lived than yours. So I joined Chainalysis in in January of, of 21. And my first year in the space was kind of up only. And it yeah. felt very much like, wow, I've, I've joined at this incredibly fortuitous time where this emerging technology is going to disrupt and, and kind of rewire the global financial system in a way that could be incredibly beneficial to people. Now, obviously, 2022 played out quite a bit different than that. And so I think you do a really nice job in the book of not avoiding the missteps of companies like FTX, but actually kind of embracing that and talking about why the ecosystem still matters. Like why is Web3 important despite all those challenges?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you have to kind of address the elephant in the room right off the top, right? And I think that there are there are a lot of people, oftentimes like leaders of the old paradigm or old media power brokers, who look at the collapse of FTX as kind of proof that all their concerns about web3 and crypto were valid. You know, they've always said that, you know, this is a technology that makes it easier for people to gamble and speculate and makes it easier for criminals to, you know, avoid law enforcement. In actuality, you can you can blame the collapse of any specific company not on the underlying technology, but on the, on the missteps or even the hubris of the people who are wielding it, right? I mean, technology doesn't have any moral agency. It's not right or wrong or good or bad. It is a tool that is used by humans, and it's how we use it that determines whether and what kind of impact it's going to have.
0: I agree. But I'm, I think back and you do a nice job of kind of charting how we got to Web3 from the early, early days of the internet in the book. One of the things that's always struck me is the internet was really a, a government project to start. And there was there was very clear prohibition around commercialization in the early days. And in Web3, it feels like everything is commercialized, yeah. right? Even some of the words like tokenomics being at the core of a new project launch. Oh, we've got to get the tokenomics right. It's sort of this distribution of future profits in some way. And I'm curious your perspective on like, are we getting the balance of this wrong? Is it too much about the money? And therefore it invites in the type of individual that leads to creation and then ultimate collapse of some of the companies we saw fail in 22.
1: I mean, you have to chart the course of the web all the way back to its very beginnings, as you said, which is actually as a project that was funded by the U.S. government to build a communication network that could stay up and running in the event of a Soviet nuclear attack. See, at the time, all telecommunications were running through one central hub. So if that hub got knocked out, then we wouldn't have been able to send launch codes to all the different places, right? But it wasn't until the 1990s that the web actually became this commercial tool. And Web1 was the early web, right? Where information was kind of presented on static websites and was pretty limited in its functionality. I uh, think like .coms for people who are old enough to remember, I am barely, I'm a geriatric millennial. So I do remember a time before the web, you know, the early 90s, it was a simpler time, <laughs> but barely, right? And then we got Web2, which introduced all these new capabilities interactive elements, collaborative apps, social media. And we also saw the rise of some huge tech companies. And, you know, Web2 brought immense economic gain to companies and shareholders, and people benefited from that. It definitely improved global connectivity. You know, we've got billions of people connected to the web now, and in many cases helped to lift marginalized voices. But it also had some very, very big downsides, right? Advertising became the web's big business model. Recommendation engines were programmed to keep people hooked, which led to extremism and misinformation. These things got so big, they became kind of choke points for government surveillance, which has occurred in the States to a lesser extent. But in in China, you know, the big tech giants have become an arm of the Communist Party. And the other thing, to your earlier point about disrupting finance, is that in many ways, they kind of enriched financial intermediaries with with actually relatively little innovation. Because we didn't have a a way to move value peer-to-peer in a digital medium, we still had to rely on traditional banks and other uh, middlemen. And the other thing, too, is that they sort of lent themselves to these natural monopolies where certain companies became dominant in individual fields. And in the case of, say, the operating system world, that means a 30% levy on users, developers, companies who are trying to launch businesses which is actually harmful to entrepreneurship. So now we're on the brink of this new web, right? The read, write, own web. And own is the operative word here, right? This new web puts users in control with ownership of assets, data, content, and creative works, you know, art and collectibles, things that they might create that that are valuable. And in the book, I talk about these four principles uh, of Web3, and I'm getting back to the point you made, (laughs) which is that ownership, so we get that, governance. You know, if you own something, you might have a say in how it's run. Identity, the idea that you can kind of have control over your data and decide how it's used. And commerce. The thing about Web3 is that it's a commercial medium. You know, the web liberated information, the first era of the web. This Web3 sort of liberates value, liberates assets. And so anything that, because it's a, a medium for value above all else, of course, all of the things that we launch are sort of an inherently kind of transactional or commercial in nature. And I actually wrestle with this exact issue in the book quite a lot which is that all things being equal if you're an internet user and you have the opportunity to use an application but also to earn a share in it because as a user maybe as a power user regular user whatever you are contributing to that thing becoming valuable you know if you're a user of uniswap or liquidity provider you are helping to improve the functionality of that service so you get to own a piece as a result, right? So all things being equal, shouldn't ownership be good? But the flip side is that what we seem to have happening in these a lot of early iterations of Web3 is a preoccupation with ownership or, or this idea of putting ownership Above all else, so that what ends up happening is, when something new launches, you know, early users kind of come in more like mercenaries than as users to try and kind of capture as many token rewards as they can. And when those token rewards become less interesting, they move on to the next thing. They're not interested in owning something that they happen to be using. They want to just own it and then sell it or move on. Right. So I do think that that is an interesting challenge. But to me, that's sort of the way to think about it. It's an it's an implementation challenge. It's not a problem with ownership being bad. Like how could being owning something be bad? How could earning something from contributing to it be a bad thing? It's a matter of how how those systems are designed, and I think that this last cycle has probably taught a lot of hard lessons. Which is that the things that are still working really well in DeFi and to a lesser extent, you know, gaming and Web3 are things that provide some underlying service that's very useful, right? Whether it's as a decentralized exchange or a game that people actually want to play, uh, having those components are necessary I think to making ownership work right so it's almost like ownership is a necessary but not a sufficient part of anything becoming really really valuable and I think that's something that we kind of already know from the real world so I agree with with this is an important question but I think that there is an answer to it
0: maybe it's simply a a sequencing where make money shouldn't be step one like there actually has to be a product or a service that someone enjoys or renders some utility or value before the economics of the system are necessarily decided and the future profits are doled out via locked up pre issue tokens. Yeah. Maybe not. One of the topics that I, I think traces through the book is this idea that Web3 is distinct from Web1 and 2 and that it really enables creator ownership you know what, I'm not very artistic. You know, I'm kind of like a mediocre writer, right? Really just corporate writing. So can't play music. So, you know, I I hear that and conceptually it makes sense. I want people who are creators to be successful, you know, earn value for whatever they make. Yeah. But I wonder like the balance of creators to consumers. Like I, I see myself personally as being a Consumer almost exclusively, maybe barring this podcast.
1: You're creating right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I realized that mid sentence and I was like, well, maybe the podcast is an exception here. But it's always struck me that, you know, of the 8 billion people on the planet, it's a relatively small percentage of people that our creators. And so when I hear that Web3 is for the creators to then own the created works or participate in that creator economy, I wonder, are we catering to a small audience mm-hmm. or, or am I thinking about this wrong? I love that question. I
1: thought about the question of how, what's the total adjustable market for Web3 before. And, you know, I think that we've seen it grow. So we should be humble in any predictions that, that we make, but maybe this is something that appeals to a really big part of the population, like, say, 400 million people or 800 million people. And that number, you know, is not just something I pulled out of a hat. It's like, In the book i talk about console gaming right so before free-to-play gaming came along and people started gaming on their phones like playing video games there was sort of like a a ceiling on how many people were willing to go out and spend 500 dollars on an xbox and down buy a bunch of discs and you know play with controllers with buttons they had to learn right it's a huge market bigger than hollywood but not every human being on the planet and sometimes i think about how important is ownership really to people could be huge. It's 10, 15, 20 times bigger than it is today, just in the short term. That's my view. But does it in five years or seven years, are we capped out at half a billion billion people? By the way, if you're a Web3 entrepreneur, you should be like licking your chops because that's a huge market. But maybe it's not everybody. My personal view is that, that eventually everyone will interact in some way with this technology. And in some ways it might be more active and in other ways it might be more passive. Like, you know, you might be sending money to your kid and studying abroad and you're using a stable coin and don't even know it or something like that. But for the active sort of Web3 participation, maybe it's a smaller number. Um, When it comes to, to creators specifically, I think it's also a really interesting question, which is that, you know, you've got to get creative people to also embrace this toolkit as a way to earn more money for their creative works. Now, a lot of that is just, again, an implementation challenge of creating user interfaces and experiences that people can use very seamlessly, but you also have to get them onto that platform. For most of human history, like technology has been a huge tailwind for creators. You know, like the before the industrial age, The way that any decent creator got paid was through patronage, right? You had to have some wealthy patron who's willing to like support your work. Technology made it so that you could sell your stuff to a mass market, whether it was a record or a CD or, you know, a song on the radio or a lithograph, you know, or a novel printed, you know, by a printing press. Like you needed these tools in order to like reach a mass market. And so the 20th century was almost like kind of a golden age for creators. And now technology seems to have a bit more of a spotty sort of track record, right? So the internet, for example, the first era, the internet, which encompasses Web 1 and Web 2, took this thing that was an asset, whether it was like a a record or CD or, you know, a piece of art, whatever, and turned it into this free commodity because it was run through the printing press of the web. And so then we got a whole new set of intermediaries, platforms that sat in the center and basically acted as the distribution channels for all art and creative work, TV, film, music, and so forth. Now, the upshot of all that is that creators get paid less than they ever have before on sort of a per unit basis. And there's very little transparency into how their work is being monetized so it's to me at this point that culture needs a new business model. And the way that we get there is with the Web3 Toolkit. We need a way for artists to be able to monetize their work, to track how it's used, especially with the rise of large language models and other AI tools, like how is IP and other content being accredited. We need new ways to fund creative ventures, and I think NFTs and token launches are a really fascinating way of doing that, especially for underrepresented communities where maybe there isn't a big capital market to fund those kinds of ventures. And we need new kinds of digital artifacts to to be able to sell to fans as a way to broaden sort of the the audience or the addressable market for, for creators. And I think you want art to thrive. And if you want culture to remain relevant and for creators to get paid, then you need to figure out a way to allow them to grow with technology or to allow technology to be part of the solution and not the problem.
0: It's a good point. It kind of reminds me of Kevin Kelly's essay, A Thousand True Fans, right? Where you don't need to have a billion people follow your your artwork or read your book of poetry. You just need a thousand true fans. And that likely supports your endeavors, which is... If a thousand true fans pay you a hundred dollars a year, you're there. That's right? right, and as a creator,
1: if that's what you really want to do,
0: and the internet has made reaching those thousand people so you know easier than it's ever been before, and I think Web three probably gives you a venue for connecting to audiences that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have. Last week's episode of Public Key, we had a charity who's trying to tackle some of the challenges of ocean plastic pollution, and they're launching an NFT collection in order to try and connect with a new generation of concerned supporters of of their program, but a kind of an alternative fundraising mechanism, which I think is a pretty interesting,
1: interesting. Well, I mean, there there are lots of great examples of this. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about Web3 is that These things seem to work better when people are feeling more optimistic about the value of assets, which is, again, another thing that's just so fascinating about Web3. But if you look at like the Ukrainian war, you know, in the early days of the war, the Web3 community raised millions and millions of dollars in aid that went directly to the Ukrainian military. You know, so like Volodymyr Zelensky said in the early days of the war, like, I don't need tweets or your posts. What I need is ammunition. Well, in the case of you know Web2, the way to to, uh, be an activist was to post something inspirational, right, or to, to show your support or to, you know, change your avatar to like a Ukrainian flag, which is all maybe useful. But, you know, it's not answering the call to arms. Right. And what's interesting about about Web3 in this asset class is that um, literally those people were putting guns into the hands of the Ukrainian people. And what was also really interesting about that particular example was that the army itself was was actually asking for crypto. Because, look, you're being invaded. Like, what are you going to do? Send it to the bank? What happens when the Russian army rolls into town? So this is a way to have the money and resources you needed, while also the benefit of self-custody and the ability to take it with you. So just kind of a fascinating example of how the strange and unintended and and kind of amazing consequences of technology, that just being one of many examples.
0: I'm curious how you think about privacy and anonymity in Web3. Like one of the beautiful things I think about what's been built in the context of public blockchains is transparency. We can yeah. suddenly see where all the money's going. Like we don't need to take the Ukrainians word for it. We can actually see the funds being transferred to them and, and have some sense maybe even of where they're then using those funds to support humanitarian relief for military yeah. operations. But it seems like we also struggle with the concept of privacy a little bit in Web three, and maybe this falls in the category of one of your implementation details where we just haven't we haven't quite figured out the right model. What, what do you think? The solution
1: is privacy for the individual, transparency for the system. Yeah, and that's the balance that we need to strike. So transparency for the system is we have this open public forum platform where we can see. who who sent what to whom and for how much and for what purpose, but we don't know who the whom is in this context, right? Uh, And I think that if we can create greater transparency at the network and market and system level, then we're going to be able to have an economy that runs better and is more, because it's more transparent, is going to be more trusted. But that doesn't mean trading away privacy for the individual. And so I think that, you know, in many respects, blockchains kind of do this, roughly speaking, but there are some limitations. I mean, there's a lot of sleuthing going on where you can kind of figure out who's sending what to whom, right? And then there are other instances where maybe you can't, and that's a problem because you know the person sending it might be a criminal or something like that. So that the latter one is harder to, to figure out. But I think that if we can manage to to capture that balance, then uh, we're building a, you know a system that that's going to work a lot better for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a topic we cover a lot on this show, and obviously we're we're doing some of that sleuthing after the criminals here at Chainalysis. But the well, you uh, guys are amazing. We haven't even talked about Chainalysis, <laughs> and
1: I, I will because it's a you know it's one of my it's a tab on my Chrome browser right now.
0: Well, thank you. I saw I saw a couple of mentions in in the book which uh, was exciting to see us see us called out in print. The thing that struck me is that initial implementation of blockchains completely transparent, but that's obviously not ideal for a lot of transactions. And so in lieu of privacy, the feature was described as anonymity. Well, hey, everyone can see transactions in and out of a given wallet, but they don't know that's Alex's wallet or Ian's wallet. So it doesn't really matter. You've got transparency and anonymity as a replacement for privacy has kind of been the the state of implementation. But it turns out that anonymity is not really as as solid as it was maybe advertised to be or thought at one time to be. And so now you've got this gap, which seems like it's an implementation hurdle. Like I've talked to a number of people in, in your old world of traditional finance we are like, we love the benefits of instantaneous settlement and you know removing some of the kind of legacy intermediaries that exist in the financial system. Replacing that with modern technology is great, but we can't be in a position where everybody can watch our activities because it eliminates our opportunity to profit. And so we need privacy to be layered on this. And it feels like there's a lot of people working on this. You have a whole section on zero knowledge proofs is like one area, but I feel like that's the next wave of innovation that maybe brings on another tranche of adoption.
1: I agree. There are lots of use cases where it doesn't matter whether there's some record. And there's others where not only anonymity, but privacy is, is essential. In general, the bias should always be towards privacy, maximum privacy. I mean, that's a right that's enshrined in many different constitutional democracies, including Canada and the United States, like a right to privacy, a right to unlawful search and seizure, a reasonable right to privacy, I think is how it's actually defined in the US. So that doesn't mean an absolute. But it means in general, we should try and figure that out. And then to your point, from a business perspective as a practical matter, yes, you need to be able to obscure who's sending what to whom for all sorts of very valid reasons. So again, I think that you look at the key building blocks of Web3. And what I find really interesting is that there's a bunch of different technologies kind of converging at once that together are helping to shape the Web3 era. And blockchains are the foundational technology of that. But there are others and in the book i talk about ai and iot and extended reality and there's a whole chapter on the metaverse but even within the blockchain sort of ecosystem things like zero knowledge proofs are i think like this key building block that are currently being implemented but once once fully deployed are going to completely expand the opportunity set of ways in which this technology can be used and i think that You know, it's not a reason why the fact that today the transparency is a concept that has flaws is not a reason that blockchains and Web3 are a bad idea. It's just an implementation challenge to be overcome, as you said.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the metaverse. I was going there next anyway. I was a little bit surprised you actually had a chapter on the metaverse in the book because it feels like we went from peak metaverse to no one wants to associate with it like the concept is in the deepest trough of disillusionment that i've ever seen in gartner hype cycle terminology yeah. but you actually seem pretty optimistic on the on the future here and you interviewed a number of people who i got that takeaway from as well
1: well so i think from from the outside looking in a lot of successful technologies look like overnight hits, right? I think a lot of people are like, whoa, isn't AI great? Chat GPT, this is amazing. I think what they fail to realize is that like we've gone through multiple AI cycles dating back to the 1960s. So these are all overnight success stories that are decades in the making. Um, when it comes to the metaverse, it's true the metaverse is kind of an amor- amorphous term that I think encompasses lots of different component technologies. But to me, the big one is basically, is the way we're going to interact with the web going to change? fundamentally from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. So if web one was the 2D web, literally like a desktop, you've got a website, web two is sort of like the 2.5 D web, right? You're still looking on a flat screen on your smartphone, but it is integrated into your natural world. Like Uber, you're calling, there's a satellite, it's getting a car, it's coming to meet you. So there is a, a spatial component. And so the question is like, will web three, will the next era of the web a fully spatial web? Will the hardware interface for the Internet change? And hardware interfaces change regularly, right? Like we went from mainframes to mini computers to PCs to smartphones. So what's next? So I think there is a really important question here about what is next. And the question is, if Apple's new Vision Pro and and the next era of headsets really do bring this to the mass market, what is that going to mean? from a practical perspective for an internet user. The fact that we wear a headset and we can go visit a metaverse environment that's curated and controlled by a company like Facebook, to me doesn't feel like a great leap forward. It just feels like a spatial version of Web2 where you're still beholden to all the rules, of some company, and all of the economic value more or less accrues to them. So I interviewed Yat Su, who's the founder of Animoca Brands, for the book, and I think is probably the smartest person in the world on this subject. And basically, so I'll use his quote instead of my quote. He said, basically, that vision, Facebook, is interesting, and it could be really fun. But fundamentally, it's it's just a virtual Disney world, right? It is not a new plane of human existence. It's not a new immersive shared reality, it's a virtual reality, it's a closed system. And so if we think that the web to reflect the values of Web 3 and for that to extend into the spatial realm, then we need to ensure that the metaverse abides by the same kinds of rules, right, or the same kinds of rights. And those rights are simply put, like the right to ownership of digital goods, the right to commerce, right, the ability to transact freely, and the right to a reasonable sense of privacy or control over your data. So if we can apply those things to the spatial web, then we will have created a, a Web three metaverse that I think is going to be a really fun and interesting and dynamic environment, rather than just some three dimensional Web two experience.
0: I am definitely putting my name down to buy one of those Apple Vision Pro devices. Yeah, by the way me too. they look cool, they look
1: sick. There's a cord to a battery pack because of the weight. The next version, we'll get rid of that, I'm
0: sure. You know, I didn't buy iPhone 1, but I think ever since the 3G version of the iPhone, I've had every version of an Apple device since then. And But the Vision Pro seemed remarkably different to me. And I, I own an Oculus and i i kind of agree with your assessment there right it's not the hardware's not quite there the experience is very much a walled garden it's not different than what you get on an xbox or a playstation in terms of like what you can really do with the platform but i'm optimistic on the the vision pro for sure
1: and i think that it's like again there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come i mean i remember when nintendo had a virtual reality headset in the mid 90s well, i can't remember what it was called like not the Game Boy, it was like the Game Pal or something. It was awful. I mean, how many times have we gone through the virtual reality hype cycle? You know, the augmented reality hype cycle or the AI hype cycle or the Web3? We're in a trough of disillusionment, I think a little bit now, though I would argue that it's a trough that's not being experienced equally by everyone. I think that what's interesting is that people become fixated on the price of tokens and for good reason, because if ownership is part of the user experience and what the thing you own is worth is part of your user experience. experience so you should care about that but at the same time What we're seeing right now, in my opinion, is almost like an acceleration of Web3 implementation at the enterprise level in a way that I think is very different than what we saw before. And what we saw before with blockchain implementations, and and I know this firsthand because we interact with dozens of enterprises on a regular basis, was this sort of like blockchains can solve everything and we got to just kind of we're going to do some proof of concept about changing the way we do things. And usually those things didn't get beyond sort of a pilot stage because it's very difficult to. To reinvent your business from the ground up. But what's a lot easier is that if someone says, here's a new toolkit, and if you can open up this toolkit inside, you're going to find a bunch of really interesting, useful tools. And you can use these in your existing business today to reach new customers or create new products and services or open new markets. And you can start small, but it's meaningful. It's not just paying lip service innovation. You're actually trying this stuff out. And we've seen that. And I actually think you know NFTs have gone through different cycles. But The fact that they created a way, a marketing tool for a lot of like traditional kinds of businesses to experiment with Web3 in a way that I think is going to have long lasting impacts. That could be Nike, for example, with Artifact or Dot .Swoosh or LVMH with its, you know, Tiffany's by CryptoPunks collaboration or whatever it is. And then the other thing is that, you know, some of these technology tools have gotten to a critical mass where... They're now starting to be meaningful for big companies. And I think stablecoins is a really good example of that, right? Where people look at PayPal entering the stablecoin world and think, oh, the big payments giant has come into the market. And in a way, they're correct in the sense that there are 25 million merchants using PayPal and a hun- hundreds of millions of users. But the actual business of PayPal is not much bigger than Tether's business. You know, Tether actually makes about about the same amount of money if you believe their attestation reports and so forth, just from the nature of their business model, which I won't get into here. But what's interesting to me is like, everyone's like, you know, the institutions are coming, like PayPal is coming. It's like, yeah, but does PayPal stand a chance against <laughs> the biggest player, like Circle and, and Tether? Like, what's it gonna do exactly that's gonna make it bigger and better? than Tether, right? I don't believe that, but I'm saying like we're in this sort of interesting period where the stablecoin market is so big that Visa is announcing that it's going to do stablecoin settlements on Solana or PayPal is doing its own on the Ethereum network, whatever it is. So we're seeing this stuff happen in real time. And we're also seeing it happen in public blockchain ecosystems on that infrastructure,
0: which is another thing that I think is, is really important. We talk a lot about the stablecoin adoption trend. I mean, I think people talk about tokenization of real world assets and you can't get much more real world than dollars via stablecoin. We just actually published, and I don't know if you've had a chance to review it yet or not, but the start of our annual global crypto adoption index. And have you released the results? We just published last week the first blog on it, which covered the index.
1: Oh, okay. So I must have missed that because yeah.
0: last year's is in the book. Exactly. So it's, it's updated
1: this year. In the introduction of the book, we say data changes so quickly. So consult the latest sources in the footnotes. And of course, chain analysis is a source. So just a little plug for you there. So what what does the latest ranking
0: say? Well, so India is number one. Not surprising. Can you talk about the methodology?
1: So yeah, it's not just total number of people, It's it's gotta be like yeah. a heat map of sorts of like adoption,
0: right? Yeah, we try and control for per capita income in order to pull out some signal from the noise and really yeah. look at grassroots adoption. You know, if you just look strictly at dollars in cryptocurrencies, you'd end up with the US as number one in, in all the permutations, yeah. which is not, not incorrect, but probably not as interesting. In this report, uh, You know, India was at the top of the list, but the the top 10 was really dominated by countries across the kind of greater ASEAN, Southeast Asia, South and Central Asia region. And I was curious in your research, like, what do you think is driving that? You touch on the global South crypto adoption phenomenon a little bit in the book. Like, what is that coming from, in your opinion? Well, partly
1: I do that to dispel rumors because there's a prevailing rumor that this is a plaything, you know, that tech bros in the States and Canada and elsewhere use to gamble and stuff. Which is not actually true. And chainalysis has done the best work in the world on this to actually say, like, let's just take a pause and actually look at the look at the data. So that's number one, which is like bust the myth. Number two is there's a much more interesting thing that's happening right now. Silicon Valley used to be called a technical apagos because of the unique kind of blend of capital and talent and universities and government RD and big companies and VC investors and so forth that led to the unique breed of species that went on to found the big internet companies. And you know, even though the web was invented in Switzerland by Tim Berners-Lee, it was It's really like dominated by the states, commercialized in America. And this time, to your point, they're still a leader, obviously, but it is a little bit different. You know, technology tools and uh, capability are more distributed than ever, but there's still big parts of the world where people are underutilized underemployed, underbanked, where they lack access to some of the tools that we all take for granted. And so, you know, if the web of Web 1 and Web 2 made it easier for people to access information and to share content and to collaborate online, then I think that Web 3 empowers people with a much more powerful toolkit, you know, a way to earn money, to store value, to build wealth, maybe even potentially in a way that is accessible to anybody with an internet connection and a smartphone, which still isn't everybody, but it is about 70 5% 5% of the population. And in certain countries, like in Southeast Asia, it's almost all of the population. So there's sort of this sweet spot, and I've I've looked at your rankings and I've, I've thought about them a lot, where it's like Mali and Djibouti and Chad and Sudan are not the top of the rankings, because they've got bigger fish to fry. Like, there's bigger problems than doing Web3. But if you're in Venezuela, Ukraine, India, Thailand, the Philippines, Vietnam, you're probably fed with a shelter and a smartphone, (laughs) but you maybe don't have access to like financial services in the same way you'd like to, or you have a way to store value in US dollars. Or maybe you're someone who's underemployed and sees, you know, the world of Web3 as a way to like earn extra income. And I think all of those are really interesting examples of why I think that this time is different. You know, I think that Web3 is happening everywhere to everything all at once, paraphrase the film. And, And that's something that's really exciting to me because it means that in my travels, like I get to see how this is happening all over the world. I mean, I have so many examples of this, but like I was in Istanbul and giving a briefing for Association of Banks in Istanbul. So like all the biggest financial institutions in Turkey, And the executives of these banks are way more sophisticated and way more knowledgeable about stable coins and crypto and stores of value, and they all own these assets and everything because they live in a country where the currency is hyperinflationary, where there's capital controls, where people are used to like coming up with creative ways to like protect their wealth and where they're maybe more willing to explore new tools to do that, right? I don't think like that and necessarily, or I do, but people where I live don't
0: necessarily think like that. And it's always just a good reminder that there's there's a big, big world out there. We've had guests on the program previously, like Ray Youssef, who's doing a tremendous amount of work in Africa and has created a foundation called Built With Bitcoin, which I think is driving some of some of the adoption. We've had the founders of Busha, which is the largest exchange in Nigeria, and they, they touch on a lot of the, the things you just mentioned, like access to capital, strict capital controls, difficulty accessing foreign finance. All of those challenges seem to be pushing people into greater usage of cryptocurrency as a means to level up and not be subject to corrupt or financially unstable and solvent local governments. The other thing, too,
1: is that that's an argument that we've heard before, and it's now actually like a reality. And I think what's so interesting to me is that, look, there are lots of people who live in parts of the world where the local currencies are unreliable or where the government is corrupt. And so to them, Bitcoin is this thing that really resonates with them, like gold does, right? And I think like Venezuela is a great example. I have a podcast and my my most recent guest was a co-founder of a company called Leaden which is basically a company that provides financial services to people who are holders of Bitcoin and Ether. And he's Venezuelan. And he said, like, my mom was mining Bitcoin before I was because, you know, th- this was a way to, like, convert energy, which was abundant, into dollars, which were scarce. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, they don't want a volatile thing. And that's OK, because we have the technology that allows us to back tokens with real world assets. Yeah. And you know, to me, it's like the number one financial utility every single human being in the world wants Is a way to store U.S. dollars. The number two thing they want is a way to invest U.S. dollars. And I think that's a whole other sort of frontier. Like the stablecoin enabled financial services in DeFi that give you a way to like earn a reasonable rate of return or invest in new projects or what have you. It's incredibly exciting. And it's also one of those things that's going to play out in these parts of the world as much there as here and maybe even more so.
0: Amazing. Maybe to wrap our conversation, which has been fascinating, like, where do you see all this going? We've touched on, you yeah, know, there's a lot of implementation details that are still getting ironed out. The adoption is is still really in its infancy in some ways. What should we expect on the five to 10 year horizon, which I know is hard to project in crypto, but I feel like if anyone can do it, it might be you. <laughs> Well, you know, they say the
1: future is not something to be predicted. It's something to be achieved, which is a great line that allows me to weasel my way out of this question. (laughs) it's it's asked of me. It's hard to make those kinds of predictions and it is early and it really depends on what metric you're using. Yeah. Like how many people use defi? Well, it's probably like less than 10 million. Yeah. How many people are active users of metamask? Well, the, that number's 30 million. Okay. Yeah. So, that's a bit bigger number. How many hmm. people own crypto assets? Well, at least 45 million just in the United States and the number I think according to you guys is Closer to like three or four hundred million people around the world. But does owning a stablecoin or Bitcoin as a store of value or an investment asset really make you a user of Web three, or is it just your sort of entree into that world? So I, you know, I just think like we're either extremely early or we're like medium early, but yeah. either way, we're early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that probably, as with other areas of the Web, this is going to be a technology that becomes foundational for business. That every company is going to need to have a Web three strategy. According to a recent ranking, half of all Fortune one hundred companies already. We have a strategy that may have also been a chain analysis report. I can't remember. I'm just going to give you credit for every data <laughs> and, point that I can pull out that's of my right. head. <laughs> that's right. any, any fact you heard on this any podcast. Is origins, yeah, that's right. You better that's be right, right about these <laughs> things. That's all I can say. <laughs> but I think like, as, with, yeah, as with other technologies, and it'll take time. And I think there are some areas where there are clearly early adopters. Yeah. I think a lot of financial co- payments, like payments companies, who are on ramps into this ecosystem are way ahead of the curve. Obviously, companies like Block and PayPal and Stripe and others, and it'll take a lot longer for other companies. But eventually, you're going to need to have a Web3 strategy. So I think this is kind of a cliche, but in the future, A lot of people will be interacting with this in a way that they don't really necessarily know that they're using blockchains or Web3 tools. There is a billion people who use console games. Like the the market cap of Roblox is based entirely on Robux, a virtual asset. People, you know, are spending, according to one estimate, $100 billion a year on virtual goods they don't don't even own. People are already comfortable buying virtual assets. They just don't want to own them, apparently, or they don't know that they can. So I think there's actually all these really kind of easy, low-hanging fruit on ramps to to get people to embrace these technology tools. And I think that if anything, that'll be sort of like the way in which we interact with it. It's not gonna be a new web where we forget about the old web. It's just gonna be an added layer that gets put on top. It's so interesting. People are like, does this mean like, but what does this mean for web two companies? It's like, I don't know, but I'm sure they'll be around and I'm sure they'll still be making lots of money and I'm sure they'll have lots of customers, but I think that they'll be less relevant just in the grand scheme of things. You know, in the same way that Dell and Compaq and HP and IBM and companies that have dominated previous eras of computing and, and technology, just they're still there. Yeah. They're not going anywhere, I don't think. But that's not where the value capture happened. The value capture in Web 2 happened on platforms Right. So where's the value capture going to happen in the next cycle? Web two platforms are still going to be around. People will still connect on Facebook and they'll still search on Google and they'll still consume content on Netflix, obviously. But those companies are not going to be where the next like five, ten trillion dollars of economic value gets created. I think they're going to become mature legacy players that have missed or will probably miss the next
0: wave of innovation. I agree with all of that. I can't wait to see it play out. Alex, what's the best way for folks to follow along uh, on this journey? Where can we find you online?
1: Yeah, well, uh, Twitter's probably the most active at Alex Tapscott. I do post a lot on LinkedIn and you can learn more about the book and everything I do at alextapscott.com. But uh, the best way to to find out about the book, of course, is to go on Amazon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And everybody should go out. By the time this podcast publishes, the book will be available for sale. You can get it on Amazon or your favorite bookseller. It's called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Alex, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, it's
1: been a pleasure. Thanks again.
0: Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So do me a favor, right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Before you go, last week we highlighted that the United States Department of Treasury had sanctioned individuals involved in illegal fentanyl, cocaine, and methamphetamine trafficking into the United States on behalf of the Mexican Sinaloa Cartel. Well, this week, Treasury was back at it. They sanctioned 28 individuals and entities in a China-based network for their role in the global trafficking of illicit drugs. To understand the complex connections between China, Mexico, and drugs showing up here in the United States, head down to the show notes to find the link where you can read the complete blog.